Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, until I come. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray for God's Spirit to bless His Word today. Heavenly Father, we come before You, and Your Word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. And so, Father, we pray that Your Spirit would work through the proclamation of Your Word to bring healing to our hearts, to bring life to our souls, to motivate us in the truth and the wonder of the gospel and the joy that is found in living for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been waiting for the day when I turn on the news, whether that's on the internet, on the radio, whether that's on the, occasionally on television. I think I still do that. Um, I'm waiting for the day when I turn on the news and one of the headlines does not have to deal, does not deal with someone being discredited. It seems like the pastime of our media and certainly the the principal strategy of any political movement and any social movement and anything that is going on is to discredit whoever is giving that message. And so regularly the headlines are discrediting the Trump, the, the president, discrediting the Uh, Congress discrediting the head of the Democratic Party, discrediting the head of the Republican Party, discrediting the Supreme Court, discrediting anyone who would be leading any sort of movement. There is this constant effort to discredit people for on any reason that they can find. And the reason why it is such a powerful tool is because the way that it works is that if you can discredit a person, what that means is that the message that they are bringing is undeserving of your attention and undeserving of your trust and undeserving of your belief. If you can discredit the messenger, you thereby can discredit the message. And there's a far bigger issue in our country, in our world, than the regular discrediting of those who are in any public position. It is a persistent and unrelenting effort to discredit Christianity to discredit the message of the Bible, and to discredit the messengers who would bear that message. It was the struggle that Paul was addressing with Timothy. Timothy, who in this passage was young, oftentimes this passage is used in youth groups, and understandably so, but it's estimated that Timothy was in his, late, his mid to late 30s when he was beginning to pastor the church in Ephesus. And his struggle, as Paul says to him, is this. He says, let no one despise you for your youth is that people in the church and people in that community were despising him. They were looking down on him because of his age, because he was young. And you consider this. Timothy was one who served with the Apostle Paul on the, on the vanguard of the advancement of the gospel. As the gospel spread to new countries and to new cultures, Timothy was there with the Apostle Paul. Yet, as he begins to pastor this church, he's being discredited. People despise him. They're looking down at him. They're saying, you know what, he's too young. This guy's never pastored before. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And there is this unrelenting force 
to discredit both the message of the gospel, but particularly to do it by discrediting the messengers of the gospel. It's a regular challenge for those who are in ministry, whether you're viewed as being too young or you're viewed as being too old. And if you're viewed as being too old, it means that you can't relate, that you don't understand what's going on, you don't understand people's struggles. What you say from the Word of God can be discredited because you don't really understand. It comes in a variety of ways. If someone's been serving for multiple years at a church, people discredit the message by saying, oh, he's just stuck in his bubble and hasn't had broader exposure. But if that person, if that minister's new to a church, he's discredited by people saying, well, he's new here. He doesn't understand us and doesn't understand our situation. And if there's a conflict that's been going on or a tension that he's involved in, people listen through the lens of that conflict and tension. But it is not only for those who are ministers of the gospel. There is a perpetual challenge for anyone who bears the name of Christ in this unrelenting effort in our world to discredit the message of Christianity by discrediting the messenger. So if you're in school, you're faced with the challenge of people trying to point out, if they know you're a Christian, of people trying to point out the inconsistency in your life. That you say that you follow Christ, but, but really you're just a hypocrite. And people are watching to, to point out that inconsistency in your workplace. If people know that you're a Christian, that you live as a Christian, people strive to discredit the message or the messenger. That may come through the latest news headline. That may come through what, how Christianity is associated with, with various political people and political movements. It may come through... Uh, observations just in terms of your own personal conduct. As you're about to head off into Thanksgiving, and maybe as many of you are getting together with family, and many of you are getting together with family who aren't Christian, and they know that you are. And how many of us have faced the challenge of some of family members saying, yeah, I know that you say you're a follower of Christ, but, you know, I, I remember what you were like when you were younger. I, I, know, I know who you really are. Don't, don't, don't give me this, this, don't feign this impression that you're this person who really loves Jesus right now. I, I know who you are. And this effort, this unrelenting effort in every sphere of our life to discredit the messenger and thereby discredit the message of Christianity. And Paul is encouraging Timothy in this passage in his response because how you respond to being discredited How you respond to being discredited either denies or demonstrates the good news of Jesus Christ. So Paul calls Timothy to live openly, to live transparently, for his life to be seen, for there nothing to be hidden, to live his life with transparent godliness. And he wants him to do so, in part, because transparent godliness silences criticism. Notice what he instructs Timothy. He says, Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. Okay, you're being discredited because you're young. What should you do? Here's what you should do. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Set set an example. How does doing so silence criticism? Because you can't argue with godliness. You can't argue with uprightness. That when someone is living above reproach, when they have been wronged and they don't wrong back and say, well, that's what they deserve. Sometimes you just have to do these types of things. When someone is wronged and they don't wrong back, 
When someone is living with transparent godliness and it is visible before other people, what happens is that when there is an accusation, others say, no, that's not true. That's not true because I know that person's character. It's the very thing that Peter urged as well in 1 Peter. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, namely among those who are not Christians. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, though they would discredit you, though they would accuse you of doing wrong, that when that occurs, and it will occur, that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That they will look at your life your transparent godliness and say, you know what? The accusations don't stand. So here are the specific areas that Paul encourages him to set an example in. He says, set an example in speech. That is, the words that you say that when you are being discredited, you're not bad-mouthing the person who is doing so. You're speaking well of them. Your speech gives grace. Your speech gives life. You're not grumbling and complaining. You're not You're not disparaging people in speech and in conduct. That the way you characterize yourself is above reproach. That when you're wronged, you don't wrong back, no matter how justifiable it is. And though you might say, well, I needed to do this because this person wronged me, that it's evident that you don't respond that way. That people look at the way that you respond when you're discredited and say, wow, What an example of how to handle rude people and people who discredit you. Second example in speech, in conduct, in love. Each one of us in our lives are faced with people that are challenging to love. Some of those people are just flat-out unloving people. They're mean. They're critical. They're rude. Um, They assume the worst of you. They're unloving. As Paul says, set an example in your love towards those who are mean to you, to those who would discredit you. But we're also called not just to love the unloving, but also the unlovely. There are people for whom it's, you know, that to love them, it's just a mess. It's a challenge, it's a mess, it's exhausting. It's not glamorous, there's no accolades associated with it. They're just, they're unlovely people, sometimes difficult to be around. He says, but set an example on how you love them. It silences criticism. And set an example on how you love not only unloving, unlovely, but also unlovable people. That there are some people that no matter how much you love them, they bite you back. That you shower them with love and they're rude and they snap back at you. And Paul's call here is he says, listen, when people do that, set an example. Be a model of how you love others and how you love unloving, unlovely, unlovable people, how you love difficult people. Let it be seen and evident in your life. Set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith. Faith not being wishful thinking, but that you consciously live your life in the circumstances of your life with a present awareness that there is a good and loving God who is sovereign and in charge over all things. That you live your life in faith and you judge your circumstances that you are faced with by the character of God. That you are faced with challenging circumstances and in the midst of the stress, in the midst of the challenge, in the midst of being discredited, that you live in faith, that you walk in faith and say, yes, this is a difficult moment, but I know that I have a heavenly Father who loves me. 
that there is not a hair that can fall from my head apart from the will of my heavenly Father, and that I am in this situation because He loves me and there is nothing outside of His control. And so despite what the things seem to me in this moment, I live in faith. I live not defined by my circumstance. I live not trying to justify myself no matter what is going on, but I live my life in faith in my heavenly Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, he says an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That you don't try to win friends by engaging in impurity. That you don't engage in coarse and crass and crude jokes and crude comments so that you can be esteemed by your peers. But you set an example of what it's like to live a godly life. As we look through this list here, something I'd like you to think about is as you examine this list, which of these areas do you need to make concerted effort to change in your life? Not just like, oh yeah, well I struggle with it, I struggle with that, but, but which of these areas will, could people legitimately discredit the gospel because of the way that you speak, for example, or the way that you conduct yourself, or the way that you love selfishly, not selflessly? What, what, which ones are theirs? And when I say that you need to make, which ones of these do you need to have concerted effort in is to not compromise on it. Because if there is an opportunity, people will discredit the messenger. Ah, they said, that guy says he's a Christian, but did you hear the jokes that he was making the other day? Oh, that guy says he was a Christian. I've never met someone who was more stressed out and high-strung than that, than that lady. Which of these, as you look at your life, could people legitimately discredit the gospel based upon how you live? And from that, in terms of making a concerted effort, what that means is to say, to call brothers and sisters and say, I need to, to, the way that I talk at work needs to change. It is a bad bad picture of who Christ is by the way that I talk, the way that I carry myself. It needs to change. And ask people to help you and to pray for you and to encourage you and to hold you accountable to trust in Christ to change in those areas. And one area that I would especially encourage you to do so with is that this, if this is in your workplace, that you would ask non-Christians to help you change in this area because they're, really, they're, they're aware of your shortcomings in these, in these areas. They see it, and they see the inconsistency. And for you to come to them and say, you know what, I've really been thinking lately that the way that I talk around here, is, it really brings other people down, and I'm really, I'm really sorry about that, and that's not how I want to operate in the workplace, if you hear me being like harsh or critical or being cynical or pessimistic, would you point that out to me so that I, 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 could, I could be a joy in our workplace? Would you help me with that? When we go on work trips, would you, would you if you see something that I'm doing that I'm not treating people in a loving and kind manner, would you, make, would you note that to me? Would you point that out to me? And you need to do so for the sake of the gospel, let alone your own sake. And Paul is calling Timothy to saying, in all areas of your life, live transparently. May it be visible. And if you're doing so, criticisms don't stand, and they don't stand against you. Paul then identifies where this root of godliness springs from, how godliness develops. And it it comes from, and it is rooted in the Word of God, and transparent godliness comes in those 
who savor Scripture, who savor the Word of God, who immerse themselves in it, who understand it, and it is expressed and manifested in their life. Paul specifically states this to Timothy. He says, you know, set an example for the believers in faith and love and hope and purity, um, in conduct. And then he says this, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Think about how surprising this is. The church in Ephesus was going through a church controversy. There were false teachers in the church. Most likely one or two of the elders of the church were teaching false doctrine and false gospel and were needed to be excommunicated. There was division within the congregation, let alone people and the needs that they had within the church. There was a community that needed to hear the gospel. There were all kinds of things going on. And of all the things that Paul could have instructed Pastor Timothy to do for the church in Ephesus, notice his priority. He says, of all the things that are coming on, the one thing that I want you to devote yourself to, yes, your personal conduct, but devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Devote yourself to the Word of God and the study of the Word of God. He gives these different aspects of it, to the public reading of Scripture. At the time, there was no written, they don't have the Bible like we have it today. Um, Rather, the church probably only had one copy of the Bible with them. And so, in order for people to hear the Word of God, they needed to gather together and for the Word of God to be publicly read. And Paul says, it needs to be a priority in your daily life and in the life of the church that you are focusing on the Word of God so that you're not focusing on hearsay. That you're not focusing on, well, this is what this person thinks about the Bible, and this is what that person thinks about the Bible, and this is what this person thinks the issue is. No, this, what it needs to be focused upon is upon God's Word. And then he says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Secondly, to exhortation. What is exhortation? It is the application of the Word of God, the application of the good news of Jesus Christ to the daily struggles of our lives. Paul's telling Timothy, you don't just need to read the Bible, but you need to take the teaching of the Bible and explain it in such a way that it applies, that people can see how the Bible applies to the situation in their life. What Timothy needs to be to grow in here is he needs to be active in the skill of spiritual diagnosis. He needs to understand the spiritual issues that are going on in the community and the issues that are going on in the church. And he needs to proclaim the scriptures and exhort them, bring the truth to bear on the situation and on the struggles in people's individual lives. Public reading of scripture to exhortation and to teaching. Teaching, particularly in Paul's usage, means doctrine. Teaching here is that he is to explain Scripture, explain the story of Scripture, explain how the Bible fits together, make the truth understandable. Now, why does Paul put such a priority on the Word of God? Why does he put such a priority that in the ministry of the church needs to be centered on God's Word? Why is that so important? It's because God's Word alone gives life. It's His Word alone that has the power to change and to generate faith in people. Paul says in Romans, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Where does faith come? Faith actually is generated in people's lives through the hearing of the word of God. 
it actually, God has so designed things that through the proclamation of the word, God uses that and has appointed that to be the means that faith springs up in people's lives. And so he says, because of the function of the word of God, it needs to be a priority that the word of God is proclaimed. Hebrews makes a similar point. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God is living and active. When God's word is proclaimed, something actually occurs. In this moment, as we are gathered together, as God's word is proclaimed, God's spirit actually does something in those who hear it as they hear it. It is living and active. And God works in our souls through the word. And of all the things that we do as a church, nothing has the power that God has bestowed upon the word of God. Nothing we do or can do gives life the way that the word of God can give life. Accordingly, it must be central in the life of the church. You know, Saturday nights, I, um, I prepare for Sunday mornings and review my sermon and think through things and clarify things and correct things and redo stuff. And while I'm doing that on my computer, I usually have a, uh, a Facebook chat group open at the same time. And there's about, it's a group of about 70 some odd pastors who are part of this group. And we, it's, we get together every Saturday night because we're all kind of doing the same thing. It's the Saturday night fellowship. And there's this chat line that goes along, and usually the chat lines are along, um, hey, uh, I need an illustration along this line. Does someone have something related to this? Or anyone have a good quote on this topic? And I would probably say most weeks, and last night two people said this, but probably most weeks in that group, and these are people who are churches who are committed to the authority of the Word of God and the, 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 the preeminence of the Word of God. But most weeks, and last night two different pastors said, about 9 o'clock at night, it's been a crazy week. I'm opening my Bible for the first time to prepare for my sermon tomorrow. Will you guys pray for me? And I get it. I, 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 I get it. I, I get the struggle. I get the demands. And, I, and for brothers, and I do, I do not judge them whatsoever. I know where their hearts are, I believe. I, I don't judge them. And I know many of them are in, you know, several of them are church planners, and their life is just crazy, and things are all over the place. But I think that if Paul was instructing them, I think Paul would say to them, Devote yourself to the Word of God. This past week, okay, cast yourself on the mercy of God for what's going to happen on Sunday morning. But next week, make it a priority. Make it a priority to devote yourself to the Word of God, immerse yourself in it, because the Word of God alone gives life and has life within it. It is of utmost importance for the vitality of a local congregation. For Timothy, Paul reiterates the point after what he just said. He says to them in the next verse, Do not neglect the gift that you have, because there's always a temptation to do so, which was given to you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Do not neglect the gift that you have. Practice these things and immerse yourself in them. Specifically related, Timothy, don't let criticism be the excuse for neglecting your calling to prepare and to preach the word of God. 
Don't let people attempting to discredit you be an excuse for not proclaiming God's word. Timothy, do not, not only do not neglect the, the gift that you have, but practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Make it a priority of your life and your time to know the word of God, for the word to be proclaimed, to be exhorted, for teaching to occur, because it alone gives life. I believe the strength of the Protestant church since the Reformation, um, certainly the strength of the evangelical church, meaning churches that proclaim, that hold to the authority of Scripture and proclaim the good news of Jesus. The strength of the church has always been its faithfulness to the Word of God and the priority of the Word of God within the local church and within the church. And it needs to stay that way. It needs to stay that way. And you as church members here at our church, when you move on from here to other places, you need to push that to be a priority within the local congregations. Because the battle today in Bible-believing churches and self-proclaimed Bible-believing churches, the battle today also within our culture related to Scripture, is not so much over the issue of inspiration. It's not really over, is the Bible God's word or it's not. Um, people aren't as worked up about that today as they used to be. Um, and people actually today are a bit more open to the idea that God works in supernatural ways and that people, that things can happen that are unexplained. People are, are more open to that today than they were seven years ago even, and even in our own community. But the bigger issue today is not over the issue of inspiration. The issue today is over the issue of, of the sufficiency of Scripture. The view is saying, well, is it inspired or is it not? It doesn't really matter because it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to my life. And so, yeah, I know the Bible says this or that about this aspect of how God designed things, but, but it, that was written a long time ago, and that wasn't dealing with my circumstances, and they don't know what a hard childhood I had, and they don't know the struggles that I'm going through in my life. You see, whatever the Bible says isn't sufficient, and it doesn't apply to my life because I'm unique. I've had my own unique struggles. It doesn't relate to me. I, what I really need is I need an expert in my area because an expert in my area is the one who actually has truth. The issue in the battle in Bible-believing churches is not over whether it actually is God's Word. It is over whether or not the Bible is sufficient for life and godliness. And unfortunately, in the broader church and in Bible-believing churches, this is a very active struggle. I think that's the core issue. It's usually not characterized that way. It's characterized more like this. We live in a day and age when, um, you know, we live in a secular society. And, you know, if you're going to lead as a church with the Bible, if you're going to lead it with the proclamation of the Word of God, um, you know, that really only works in, like, Christianized community where people have a familiarity with God's Word and they've got a familiarity with Christianity. And so that's, that's where that's appropriate for. You need to do it in that type of community. And if you're really reaching a secular context and they don't believe the Bible to begin with, you, you really shouldn't lead off with the Bible if you're trying to, to reach them. And then it works out in different ways in terms of struggles that people have, in terms of legitimate issues in people's lives. And John MacArthur, who's a, a, a preacher and teacher, I think he gives an accurate summary of the state of the priority of the Bible in self-proclaimed Bible churches, Bible-believing churches, and Bible-believing denominations. And he begins by addressing the state of the church in the first several centuries. And identifying that when the church began, 
Nobody was Christian. And when the gospel advanced into new communities, there were other religions. And in came Christian missionaries such as Paul and Timothy, and they said, you know, whatever you're believing, that's not true, but what's true is this. This is true, and let me tell you what it says. And so MacArthur writes this. It is no accident that the church was originally born and unleashed into the first century world, chiefly through preaching. In fact, almost every time Luke made note of growth patterns in the early church, he expressed it in terms like this. The word of God kept on spreading. That was Paul's term for the advancement of the gospel. The word of God kept on spreading. He continues, clearly, preaching, specifically biblical preaching, is the main strategy God himself ordained for church growth and for leading and feeding his flock. Naturally, it is the one strategy he is also truly blessed. It is remarkable, then, that over the past half century or longer, evangelicals have devoted vast quantities of energy and resources to the invention of novel church growth strategies that tend to discount biblical preaching. Such schemes sometimes even deliberately avoid any reference to the Bible altogether. When, he's saying this, what I'm, what, when he is saying this, he is actually referring to overt courses taught in church planning seminars in seminaries that say, don't lead with the Bible. Don't mention that this comes from the Bible in your church when you're teaching these things. In evangelical seminaries, evangelical churches, evangelical church planning movements. Such schemes sometimes even devoid deliberately avoid any reference to the Bible altogether, especially when unbelievers are present. They aim instead at attracting people through marketing campaigns, entertainments, social activities, and other similar techniques. Many of today's evangelical church leaders have borrowed their management philosophies from the corporate world. They have taken their fashion cues from the entertainment industry. They have intimidated the, they have Im- imitated the communication styles of secular mass media favoring sound bites over substance, and they have employed various bells and whistles from modern technology designed mainly to amaze and impress rather than to teach and edify. The visible church now mirrors the world to a disturbing degree, and a major portion of Christendom is spiritually starved, and sound biblical preaching and teaching has become an extremely rare commodity. This is assessment. But Paul's admonishment to Timothy is prioritize the Word of God because it is the Word of God alone that is living and active. It is through hearing the Word of God that faith is generated. And it is through the working of the Word of God that transparent godliness springs forth, grows, and develops in an individual and in a church. It all starts with savoring the Word of God and savoring Scriptures. Having given these encouragements... Paul then describes how exactly transparent godliness is to occur in our lives and why it is so important. In describing how transparent godliness is to occur, he says that, well, transparent godliness actually is, it's, it's transparent. Here's how Paul writes it. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. What is he to practice and immerse himself in? Certainly the preaching, teaching, and exhortation of the word. He's also to practice the things of setting an example in love and speech and purity and conduct and faith. 
And he says, practice these things so that all may see your progress. Not only is the gospel to be heard from you, not only is the gospel to be witness in your life, but the progress of the gospel is to be evident before all. The progress of the gospel. I do not like this verse. In fact, if I were writing the Bible, I would cut this one out. If you got the WRV, this this verse simply would would not be in there. And the reason for it is because I don't want people to see my progress. Because to see my progress means that I was deficient before and that I've grown in an area. And I don't want anyone to see that, and I don't want anyone to acknowledge that. I mean, I want to present myself as, I'm all together, I mean, I've got my act together, I've arrived, I'm competent, I know what I'm talking about, I don't have any weakness, there's no ground for discrediting me, there's no ground for criticism, there's no shortfall in my character or things that I've done, I've got it all together, and for me, to show my progress means not only acknowledging that there was a need for progress, not only acknowledging there was a need for progress, but to acknowledge that I know that you know there's a need for progress in my life. And not only do I know that you know there's a need, but worse, I know that you know that I know that you know that there's a need for, for, for progress in my life. I, I don't want to be transparent. I, I don't want people to see that I've got weaknesses and shortcomings, that I've got present struggles with sin in my life because I still need a Savior. I don't, I don't want people to see that. How about you? Do you find it easy to be transparent? When you're getting together with other Christians or other people, how do you describe what's going on in your life? Are you transparent about it? Or do you say everything's going great? Everything's fine. It's been a good year. Yeah, yeah it's been a good, good year when it's been an awful year. That if you, do you have the perspective on transparency? You say, well, you know, yeah, it's really important for me to be transparent, but I'm, I'm only comfortable doing that with a really small group, group of people who know me well. Why? Is it because you feel like those who know you well won't judge your character based upon what you share? And that if other people more broadly, if you can't manage your public image with people more broadly, that you just don't want to share that? Because, you know, I mean, if, if I'm transparent, I mean, there's this possibility that other people might not think that I'm as great as I want them to think I am. So, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to close this up. I, I, I'm not going to share these things. Why would I? And Paul says, no, you need to have transparent godliness. And for a very profound and sobering reason. Transparent godliness needs to be is necessary for your life and faith. It has to be there, and it must be there because transparent godliness saves souls. It saves souls. Paul writes, "Practice these things. Immerse yourselves in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch yourself and on their teaching. Persist in this." For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You will save yourself and your hearers. That transparent godliness is necessary for them and it is necessary for you. It is necessary for myself. When Paul says, wait a second, transparent godliness because you will save yourself, what exactly is he saying? 
I believe what Paul's teaching is saying you need transparent godliness so that you stop believing your own propaganda. So you stop believing the storyline that you tell yourself. That any shortcoming in your life, well, it's not really my fault, and, you know, I had a hard life, and, and these things, and I got a short, you know, I got a short shrift on this, and, and I guess this, was a, this wasn't really my fault, and if that person wasn't so nice to me, really, everything that you see about me in my life, it's not really who I am. That's really all not my fault, because the way that you all should be viewing me, and the way I want you to view me, is up here, because I sparkle. And Paul says, No. You need transparent godliness so it will save yourself, so that you stop believing your propaganda, so that, you, so that you are regularly forced back to the cross of Jesus Christ, so that you regularly come back to the Lord and say, Lord, all that I am, all that I have, all that I can do in my life is only in a holy gift of your grace. Anything that I have is, is purely the work of what you've done in me. And then, Lord, I want other people to see that. I want other people to know that. Lord, you who began this good work in me, I need you to bring it to completion because I'm a mess. My life is a mess, and I have sin, and I struggle with sin, and I think that I'm improving at it, and then I struggle with it, with it with again. I struggle with it again. Lord, apart from the indwelling work of your Holy Spirit, I'm undone. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you need to be transparent about your present need for Jesus in your life so that you don't become deluded into thinking that God made a really great choice for picking you on his team, but so that it is seen in your life and you are presently living each moment and by moment, trusting in Christ, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just something that you trusted in years ago, back when you were a sinner, but now, you know, back when you got saved, now you've been living for Jesus and everything's great and honky-dory. Who are you kidding? Paul says transparent godliness is needed because you will save so that you can save yourself, so that you don't deceive yourself. And he says it's necessary so that you will save also your hearers. How is that the case? Because if you are living with transparent godliness, it demonstrates that the Christian life is not about mounting some pedestal. It's not about achieving some, some plateau, arriving at some point where you're good enough and finally life has all worked out. But it needs to be visibly seen by Christians and by non-Christians. It needs to be visibly seen and witnessed that Jesus saves sinners. That Jesus works in real people who have real struggles. That Jesus bestows worth and value on people despite their success and despite their failure, despite their criticism and despite being discredited. Other people need to see a life lived in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of the struggles within ourselves, the struggles of relationship. Other people need to see the gospel present, that Jesus is the one who works in our lives. You know, Christians sometimes have this bizarre perspective, and I think it it's, comes from a desire to not be a bad witness, but the way that Christians sometimes witness and want to share their faith, the storyline kind of goes like this. You know, there was a time in my life when I was as messed up as you, but then I found Jesus, and now you can become like me if you believe in Jesus too. Isn't that great? Who wants to hear that? Rather, what is compelling is that if you're living with, with someone who is honest, 
and who has a genuine humility because they know that their worth and value doesn't come from their performance. It doesn't come from what other people say, but they know that it comes from Christ. That is so intensely attractive. When people look at your life and say, you know what, I don't know how you survived the season that you have been through. I don't know how you work through the struggles that you are going through right now. But wow, God has worked in your life. What an amazing picture of the gospel. It needs to be seen in your life because transparent godliness saves souls. Because transparent godliness, God uses that to work faith in the gospel in other people's lives. And as difficult as it is, God has this delight in using the weak things of the world to make the truth of the gospel more beautiful. A few years ago in our sonship class, I was sharing some of my struggles and some of my sin. And one person in the class said, you know, well, every church I've gone to, the pastor has talked about how messed up they are and how big of a sinner they are, and I never believe them. But you, I believe. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's, that's great. That's, that's, that's really good. Really, really glad to hear that. <laughs> really glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that if Christ is seen through that. And I think for each one of us, genuine honesty is so rare. And when people see, Christians and non-Christians, when people see a genuine faith in the struggle and the brokenness of life that is transparently visible, it's beautiful. And so as we think about this, May we love Jesus. May we cling to the gospel. May we faithfully teach and preach and savor the word of God. May we diligently live the gospel. And may the gospel be seen in us. May we live lives of godliness. May we live lives of transparency. May we live in transparent godliness. Pray with me. Father, I thank you that you know me, and you know the things that I hide, and you still love me. And I thank you for Christ, who when he thought of the cross and he thought of me, he didn't say, who, yuck, him? But rather he said, He's one for whom I died. So, Lord, may your gospel and your grace work in us. May we savor the word of God. And may we live our lives that you would be seen in us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the Lord's Supper here this morning, we have a picture of exactly what Christ has done. We have a picture of Jesus who set aside his glory, his honor, and entered into the brokenness and the muck and mire of this world so that we would have life and have life abundant. Knowing all the, that the wrath of God was about to be poured out on him the night before he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you 
for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And brothers and sisters, I personally need the proclamation of the gospel in my own life. And this meal for us is given to be a visible, sensible, taste, touch, feel reminder of the truth of Christ. This might be your only honest moment of the week. I hope it's not, but it might be. And it is the moment where we come once again to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, I bring nothing. I come to you empty-handed. I deserve nothing. I make no claims on your grace. In fact, all I am is one who deserves it. And so if you are one who is trusting in Christ and are part of his bride, the church, come, be fed, be renewed, be strengthened that the gospel of Jesus is that he came to die for real people who are real sinners who needed a real savior like you and like me. If you're here this morning and you're still processing this and you're working through what it means to be a follower of Christ, it's good that you're here. We'd ask that you use this time not to take these elements, but rather use this time to cry out to the Lord and to cry out to Him that His grace would be present in your life, that you would know Him, and that you would be freed through coming into the knowledge of Him. Let's pray and set this apart. Lord, we ask that you would use this meal to sober us, to remind us of the wonder of your grace that before you there is no boasting, that we all come to you on an equal ground of being disqualified before you. Think of Isaiah who says, Woe me, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. But you, Lord, through Jesus Christ, have washed away our sin so that we would be as white as snow. Lord, may we experience that washing anew and afresh this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a reminder, there's wine in the purple cups, grape juice in the clear cups, and if you're unable to come forward, Scott Hoffman here will serve you in your seat. Hey, Scott.